Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. We'll be looking in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be focusing on chapter 8. I wanted to also mention one other opportunity that we have coming up uh, this week that we can be a blessing and be part of a ministry, and that is the Family Promise Comfort Food Cook-Off. Now, anytime you can combine ministry and being part of the work of God with delicious food, oh my goodness, that is great. And so I hope that you will circle that on your calendar, and this will be a way that uh, you can, can be a blessing as well uh, this Friday, January 24th, and it'll be at Christ United Methodist Church. So I uh, just wanted to let you know about that. We are in a series, a preaching series, called Plug In, this this springtime when we have our season of imitation and we're wanting to plug in to to ways that we can serve God but we also want to plug into walking with God as a disciple and last week Greg did an excellent job starting us off in this series and talking to us about the difference in a disciple and a follower now, for many of us today, the word disciple is kind of a churchy word. It's a, it's a word that we really don't use very often. We've kind of imported it and, and reserve it for talking about things that are going on in here. And so, so we've tried to think, well, what would be a better word than that? And, and it's hard to find an, another word in English that would, would really carry the same impact and weight as discipleship. And so we're going to just use the word discipleship, but hopefully infuse it with meaning and, and help us to understand what it is about discipleship that is so special. Now, the concept of discipleship for Matthew is, is very very evident. Uh, Matthew really wants us to understand that Jesus came not just to seek and save the lost, but also to make disciples. In fact, if you look at the book of Matthew, in chapter 4, Jesus goes out and he's tempted in the wilderness, but right after that, the very first thing that, that Matthew has Jesus doing after the time in the wilderness as he begins this ministry is that he calls disciples. And last week we, we studied about that and we learned that there's a difference in the we want attitude and the we will attitude. And so Matthew begins talking about Jesus' ministry, talking about discipleship. And then the very last words, if you've turned over to the very end of the book of Matthew, we have Jesus looking his apostles in the eyes. And he gives them a commission. And we call this the Great Commission sometimes in church. The Great Commission where we're commissioned to go out into all the world to, to preach the good news of Jesus and to make disciples, teaching them all the things that Jesus had taught them. And so I think that Matthew puts this, these bookends, this framework, where discipleship is something that, some, that, that Matthew wants us to really recognize and to understand. So also when we look at Matthew, we have to realize that Matthew's not as much interested in a historical narrative, one that, that really values chronology. This happened before this, and this happened after that. 
But Matthew is more concerned about helping us understand this, this lesson that he's hoping that we will see from putting the stories together. And so, rather, uh, as we look at this, this uh, passage today, we're going to see how he does that, that he's encouraging us to understand discipleship in a deeper way. So before we get into our text today, uh, as, as I was studying, it reminded me of something that I experienced several years ago when I was a missionary in the city of Bangkok in Thailand. I had a, a young lady, and I'll call her Kathy, who came as a missionary apprentice, and she was going to work with us for six months. And so what we would normally do is we would welcome them at the beginning, and then about one month in, we would have some time with them, the apprentices that would come and work with us, to where we would find out how they're doing, just kind of check in with them. And so when the one-month meeting came with Kathy, I asked her, well, how are you doing? And I really appreciated her honesty because she said, I'm extremely miserable. I really don't like it here. And so I began to ask more questions about that, and it turned out that the heat was very oppressive for her. She was uncomfortable all the time. She didn't really like Thai food, and so the food was upsetting her stomach, and she felt ill almost all the time. She was an outsider. She felt alone. She couldn't speak Thai, and sometimes she felt like everyone was talking about her. She felt totally dependent on other people because she really, really missed her car. In Texas, where she lived, she could get in her car and go anywhere she wanted, whenever she wanted, but, but she was so afraid that she might get lost in Bangkok, she never went out without anyone else, and so she felt trapped. There was no freedom to go where she wanted, when she wanted. And then, in, in a moment of, of honesty, she says, I also feel like everyone is always watching me. The reality of being a Caucasian Christian woman in an Asian Buddhist context was something that she felt very strongly in her life. She, she said at church it felt like she was seen as this exemplary Christian, that she was a missionary that had left everything, left her family and traveled all the way to the other side of the world and and everyone expected her to be this really strong Christian, and she didn't feel that. She felt like they were watching to see how she prayed. She felt like they were watching her to see whether she was really studying her Bible. Did she wake up early? Did she stay up late? She was, she was burdened by this, this understanding that she felt like everyone was watching her. And she said not only that, out in the community... She felt like everyone knew that she was a Christian. She stood out. Everywhere she went, people recognized her as an outsider and that she, she was part of our church. And so she felt like everyone was looking at her and they were concluding, oh, so that's what a Christian is like. And the more that we talked, 
the more she articulated the honest truth that at home in the Bible Belt, she felt like she could blend in with society whenever she wanted to. As I was thinking back to that conversation, it made me think that God really helped Kathy in that experience to understand and to wrestle with this concept of discipleship. That she was living into this, this uh, stress, this, this uh, struggle of I want and I will. And that she was personally learning the difference in what it meant to be a follower and a disciple. So that leads us into our text today in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 18 where Jesus speaks very straight about what it means to follow him as a disciple. And it almost looks in this passage that Jesus does everything he can to talk people out of being a disciple, to discourage followers. And some of his, some of his actions and some of his words in our text today might cause us to feel uncomfortable and think, Jesus, what are you doing? And so, as we get into this study, we can see that Matthew, he puts, these three, he puts three stories together in a setting. And so, as we see this text, let's kind of get the outline, what we do, what we've got here. We've got the setting, and we're going to talk about that. And then we have story number one, story number two, and story number three that Matthew intentionally puts in this sequence so that we can see the overall message. So, Let's get into the setting, verse 18. Verse 18 reads like this. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. When Jesus saw the crowds. If you look at where this is placed, we can see this, this chapter 8 is right after the Sermon on the Mount ends in chapter 7. And at the very end of chapter 7, we can see that there were crowds of people that had gathered to hear Jesus' teaching. And they were amazed at the teaching of Jesus because Jesus taught as someone who had authority, not like the normal teachers of law taught. And so then we, we see that they follow Jesus down the mountain and Jesus spends some time with them. When Jesus saw the crowd, he told everyone to pack up. We're leaving. We're going to the other side of the lake. Now, we see this tension here because the disciples probably thought that the crowds were a good thing. They probably thought that the crowds were, were this sign of validation, this, this support that they felt, that people were actually understanding what Jesus was trying to do, and they were going to follow him. But evidently, Jesus wasn't impressed by the crowds. Evidently, Jesus saw the crowds as a false indicator. You see, in God's kingdom, majority doesn't rule. It's not a democracy. In God's kingdom, it's not a republic. It's God's kingdom. It's where the king of king rules, and there's only one voice. 
There's only one voice that we need to listen to. Not the voice of the crowd, but the voice of the king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Jesus gave the orders to prepare the boat. And he said, we're headed over to the other side of the lake. Now, I don't know how the disciples really felt because I wasn't there and we don't really have any indication, but I can kind of put myself in the story and I can think, well, if I were one of those disciples, I would be kind of perplexed and kind of wondering, we're leaving now? We're, we're planning to leave just now when, when there's a large crowd and a large following, more people to teach? But Jesus indicates that it's because of the crowds that he wanted to leave. And he says, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. Now, I don't know if you write in your Bible or not, but in my Bible, I circled the other side of the lake or the Sea of Galilee, and I drew a line all the way down to verse 28 because we can see a picture as to what Jesus was thinking of and indicating when he said, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. You see, the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee wasn't just geography. It wasn't just a change in, in where they were. The other side was the place where the unclean, non-Jewish pagans lived. The other side was the unfamiliar, the unclean the uncomfortable. If you read on past today's text, later on you can see that the other side is where evil was so personified that demons actually lived inside of their people's bodies. That it was a place that was so unclean that pigs just roamed around in large herds. It was a place that no Jew would ever want to go. The other side. Now, the crowd shouldn't have been surprised that Jesus said that because Matthew had recorded little indicators that would be foreshadowing for the way that Jesus was going to do ministry. You see, Jesus actually touches a leper to heal the leper. And Jesus showed kindness and compassion to the oppressive enemy, the Roman centurion whose servant was ill, whose servant needed Jesus' healing, uh, healing touch. And so it's as if Jesus is, is giving this message that, yes, I can heal your family, but I'm also going to be healing the oppressor of your of your country, that I will show kindness to those that you love in your family, but I'm also going to show kindness and compassion to the unclean who are violating the law of Moses. Are you okay with that? And so it's here then that Jesus puts these two conversations, two prospective followers Prospect number one, verse 19. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now I can imagine the look on the 
on the apostles' face when they heard this. They were probably giddy with excitement. Oh my goodness, this is a teacher of the law, and he's going to join our group. I mean, we're going to be respected now. We're going to have some status now. And last week we saw that Jesus called his first apostles, and they were fishermen. They were just common, ordinary laborers who really weren't able to qualify to be a teacher, a rabbi, or, or someone who was respected in the community for their knowledge of, of the law like this teacher was. And so here, this teacher of the law comes and says, I want to follow you too. I'm going to go wherever, wherever you need me to. I'm going to have instant impact on your movement. And so we expected Jesus to say, Oh my goodness, I'm so glad you're willing to join us. Welcome. We expect Jesus to say, We are so honored to have you on our team. But that's not what Jesus says. Imagine the look on the disciples' face when Jesus replied in verse 20, Foxes have dens, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, Jesus isn't necessarily meaning that, that if you follow Jesus, you're going to have to sleep outside under the stars every night. There were many times when Jesus stayed in the homes of, of friends and, and people that loved him. But what he is saying is that you can't expect institutional respect you can't expect people to open up their homes just because they respect and see who you are. You can't, you can't live with entitlement or this desire for special treatment. You see, this teacher of the law was probably well-connected. He's probably well-established. And Jesus was saying, you know, you really don't understand what you're saying. Because if you follow me, we won't be staying in nice homes. And if you follow me each day, we're going to really be following the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And, and so we don't really know where we're going to go or what we're going to do. It's going to be hard to follow a schedule. And some nights we're going to just have to lay down where we are. It won't be comfortable. It won't be planned. There's no special privilege. Do you really want to follow me? And we don't really know what this prospect, this teacher of the law, said because Matthew doesn't record it. But we kind of get the idea, because he's not mentioned later on, that he most likely maybe walked right up to the edge of the water. And when the disciples were getting on, the other disciples were getting onto the boat, he stood at the edge and said, I, I don't think that I'm going to follow. Well, then Matthew puts prospect number two. Verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, at first glance, all of us would say, this seems like a very reasonable request. Honor your father and mother. I mean, that's part of the Ten Commandments. Surely Jesus would say, yes, that's exactly what we want from our followers. But that's not what Jesus said. Maybe it's because 
that what he, what he was really saying when he, when he says, first let me go and bury my father, is that, that his father's not dead yet. Because really, if his father was already dead, he wouldn't be out there listening to Jesus. He would be with his family. And so what most scholars are saying is that what, he sa- that, that he's, what he's meaning is that I very soon am going to come into a large inheritance. And I kind of noticed that you guys don't have a whole lot of support financially. So here's what I'll do for you. I'm going to go home, and once my father is dead, and I've received this inheritance, then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to support your efforts financially. The main problem, though, that I notice with this is that he says, Lord, first let me. First let me. First, let me get married. First, let me get a job. First, let me, let me get the kids up and out of the house. I'll follow you, but first, let me get my life right. Let me graduate. Let me retire. Sometimes we say the same thing. But in verse 22, Jesus says, To him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In the same way that Jesus in other places says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, Jesus is saying, let those who are spiritually dead deal with things that are not spiritually life-giving. Let the dead bury the dead. If there's something else more important than the call of Jesus on your life, then you've misunderstood Jesus' invitation. So we have two prospective disciples. And in this conversation, their hearts are revealed that there's competing gods that they're honoring. There's competing priorities. The God of comfort the idol of convenience, the desire for respect, entitlement, security, control. And all of these, Jesus knows, are going to keep us from enjoying the true blessings of intimacy with the King of Kings. But it's very important to notice that the the story doesn't end there. Matthew puts another story right at the end of that. And it's important that we see this next story, too. In verse 23, Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. At this point in the story, I'm thinking these disciples must really, really be conflicted and confused about what they've been doing. Why are we following Jesus? What are we doing? I mean, Jesus is avoiding crowds rather than seeking power and influence that can come from the masses. I mean, Jesus is is rejecting followers that that could provide much-needed respect and financial support. And... 
we're headed to a place, he wants us to go to a place where our values and our ways aren't respected. Not only that, it's risky. We're going across to the other side of the lake rather than staying close to the shore. And now we're in the storm and Jesus is sleeping. Isn't he concerned? Doesn't he care about us? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever wondered if Jesus actually hears your prayer? You see, if we were doing a cost analysis of following Jesus, at this point, we would have to conclude that the cost of following Jesus is not worth it. But the story's not over yet. In verse 26, Jesus come, wakes up and he replies, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed, and they said, What kind of... What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They're in a wooden boat. And they're being pounded by real waves. And they're being tossed about by powerful winds. But Jesus focuses their attention on their spiritual problem. The problem of their hearts. And he says, it's as if he's saying, you still really don't know who it is that you're following. Yes, the challenges of this world are going to seem overwhelming. There's going to be evil. You're going to, to deal with the pain and the sorrow of death. There's going to be separation. There's going to be broken promises. There's going to be lies. Later in, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus is going to bring all of his apostles together and he's going to look them in the eye and he says, in this world, you are going to have tribulation, suffering, pain. But he says, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. If we were to do a cost analysis right now, it would totally change. The cost analysis of following Jesus at this point where you've got the creator of, your, of the world in your boat, the one who can stand up and, and just speak a word and the winds stop and the waves they die down, the one who brings peace even in the midst of a storm. The cost analysis would be, this is a no-brainer. You're in the best place you could possibly be following Jesus. We'd say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. Wherever you send me, I'm going to go. Whatever you ask me to do, I will do. I want to think like you. I want to see people like you see people. And every choice that I make, I want to be the, the choice that you would make. And I want to serve you every minute of every day that you give me to live on this earth. And, and dear, dear Jesus, I'm going to do so with great joy, not as a burden, not as a burden that I'm carrying, but a great joy because you are using me to change the world. 
and what a privilege it is to be able to follow you in that way. I recently watched on TV a documentary that National Geographic produced. I don't necessarily recommend this to you. It was terrifying to me. It's called Free Solo. The fact that there's a nervous laughter out there means that some of you have watched it as well. This particular documentary is about a man, I would call him a crazy man, named Alex Honnold, who has this goal in life to free, who had this goal in life to free solo, to be the first person to climb to the top of El Capitan in Yosemite. Free solo. Now, when I started watching this, I had no idea what free solo actually meant. Free solo meant that he would be climbing up this granite facing that's over 3,000 feet high, and he would not have any safety harnesses, and he would not have any ropes. It would just be his toes and his fingers and his thumbs and his arms that would hold him to that rock. It was miserable to watch. There was at one point that he actually hung, he hung with his feet dangling down by his thumbs. And I was sitting there on my couch, probably about 28 inches above the, the floor, <laughs> and I was about to die. I have to be honest with you, I judged him. I said, no one should do this. He's crazy. He's irresponsible. This should not be something that anybody should do. But I began to listen to his voice and listen to his narrative, and I, I had another thought, and it was that he knew what his life was about. He knew why he woke up every morning, and he knew how he was going to make decisions every moment of his day. In fact, the interviews asking him about it, and, and he said this, and when he said this, it was like he was looking at me through the TV screen sitting on my couch. I mean, I could feel his eyeballs at me. He said this, I want to climb in the best places in the world. That's my focus. So I'm willing to give up having stability, having a shower, having whatever to climb the way I want. I'm probably more intentional with the way I live my life than virtually anybody. I have made clear choices about what I find value in, what risk I'm willing to take. I'm doing exactly what I love to do. And this is where I felt his eyeballs. He says, it's very easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it as crazy and stupid. 
but I can justify all my choices. Can you say the same thing? You'll never catch me climbing El Capitan. But I repented that day. Because I was there on the couch condemning his lifestyle and judging his decisions, but I began to ask myself, well, what about me? Can I say the same thing about my commitment to Jesus? Do I justify all my decisions my choices through my acceptance of Jesus as King and Lord of my life. You see, to the world, the life of a Christian doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're to love enemies? Huh. We're to live with generosity, giving our money away? We're to be grateful in all things. We're to deny ourselves. We're to turn the other cheek. We're to walk the second mile. It doesn't make any sense. Can I say that I've made clear choices about what I find value in and what risk I'm willing to take and that I'm doing exactly what I love to do? So, back to Kathy. She was miserable. And I asked her, I said, well, what do you want to do? You've got five more months. You can go home right now, or you can try to stay your whole time, make it to six months. I didn't really know what she would say. She says, I want to stay. So, six months passed and it came time for her to leave and I was so proud of her and she came in and I said well what have you learned and she looked at me and she said these are the hardest six months of my life but she began to tell me about what God taught her and I'll never forget her sermon to me. She said, I came in here not knowing that my love for God was actually propped up by so many other things. I thought I loved God, but I didn't really know what that meant. My love for God was propped up by security, and God flicked it away. My love for God was propped up by comfort and getting everything the way that I wanted when I wanted it, and God flicked that away. My, God, my love for God was propped up by my desire for freedom to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it and to go where I wanted to go when I wanted to go, and God flicked that away. And she says, I stand before you today loving God like I've never loved God before. Kathy got on the plane a few days later, flew back to her home. Didn't stay in really close touch, but I heard that it, life was tough for her. Her parents got ill. She became their primary caregiver, and both of her parents passed away. And then not long after that, she began to suffer with physical ailments 
of her own. And her life ended way, way too soon. And I wasn't with her when she had those final days. But I was told. I was told that Kathy had peace because of Jesus in her life. Is it worth following Jesus? Absolutely. But it's only when we surrender all to Jesus that we can truly learn that intimacy that God has prepared us for. So we're going to close with a song, a song that's going to invite everyone to respond in your own way. There'll be people to pray in the back. I'll be up here at the front. After the service, I'll be there at the information desk. But we're going to sing a song to encourage all of us to surrender all to Jesus, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Let's stand and sing together.